Conversations. Good day, everybody. You guys are listening to Med Conversations. Hi, everyone. Uh, how's it going, Davo? So it's just me and Beck here today. Yeah, I'm good. I'm really sorry that it's been such a long time since we've recorded a podcast. I, I have excuses. We probably should talk about that for five to ten minutes. Mm. No, let's not. Basically, I have exams that I'm busy in. Beck is also studying. I'm sorry. Sorry, everyone. Now, let's go. Mitral regurg is the case today. All right. So uh, let's talk about Mary. Let's just say you're the cardiology intern working in outpatient clinics in cardiology, and the next patient to be seen is Mary, a 20-year-old female. The name's not familiar to you because you've never heard of anyone because you're an intern in a cardiology outpatient clinic in a public hospital. Mm. Anyway, so you quickly look up her file on the computer to see if there's a referral letter there. After 15 minutes or so, the computer loads the scanned page pixel by pixel to reveal the reason for referral. Palpitations FI. You call Mary's name into the waiting room and a well-looking lady stands up and hands you the ECG she had done by the clinic nurse on her way in. You walk with her into the consult room and move towards closing the door, but then you see that the ECG shows AF. Got the answer. You open the door again before she sits down, usher her back into the hallway and make some wriggling motions with your hand to describe the complex pathophysiology of atrial fibrillation. You give her a script from a toprolol and a pixaban, Tell her you'll see her in four weeks for DCR. Because patient rapport is important, you make sure to give her a condescending little pat on the shoulder as you gently steer her back into the waiting room. You'll be fine, you tell her. Then you call the next patient. That's very efficient. Good. All right, so I guess that's the end of the podcast, and um, (laughs) thanks for listening. No, so I, I sort of went through that because I think that sometimes we tend to do that in medicine. We think that we get the answer quickly, and and often the answer lies in asking why particularly Um, if it's a uh, condition like atrial fibrillation if you're used to general medicine everyone's got af because they just do but in a 20 year old female you've definitely got to think twice about how she's ended up with atrial fibrillation so the alternative story is that this patient comes in and you um kindly actually let her enter the room and sit down Mm. so she tells you that she's the indigenous liaison officer at the hospital across the road she lives with her husband She jokes that the medicine cabinet at home is empty apart from tablets for their geriatric kelpie. So she's pretty well. Mm. She's had these palpitations on and off for six months. They're associated with lightheadedness, but no syncope. She's otherwise fit and well and walks her dog every day. On some further questioning, she says that she's had some decreased exercise tolerance. She admits that she thinks she's been blaming her dog's comorbidities for their increasingly shorter walks, but on reflection, she realizes that it's actually been her, not the dog, who's been getting shorter breath more easily, and it's been getting worse over the past few months. So, Dava, if you want to summarize. So, yeah, we've got a 20-year-old Indigenous lady with a new diagnosis of atrial fibrillation, fatigue, and progressive exertional dyspnea. So, as I said before, that's very young for atrial fibrillation and she deserves some thinking about how this has happened. So, we've got a whole podcast on AF if anyone wants to do a bit of back reading. But um, one of the things that can cause this is mitral valve disease. So, um, that's what we're talking about today. So, a bit of an overview of what we'll go through today uh, regarding mitral regurgitation. The cardiac anatomy, some etiology, um, pathophysiology of mitral regurgitation clinical features, what investigations you'd do, how you'd treat it, and uh, that's about all. So, what is where in the heart, Dara? If you could just summarize the entire cardiac anatomy <laughs> in 50 characters or less. 
Yeah, this is a good uh, audio learning opportunity, I feel, as always. So the mitral valve, hopefully you've heard of it before, but it's between the left atrium and the left ventricle. And the reason it's called the mitral valve is uh, because there's two leaflets, much like uh, the cap of a bishop, the mitral cap of a bishop. What, really? Yeah, that's really why. So the, the reason I remember that is because then you've got a bicuspid aortic valve, which is abnormal because a normal aortic valve has three leaflets. And that's the reason why you remember about the bishop. Yep, it's all linked in my head. <laughs> all right, so mitral valve is a left-sided valve and, and regurgitation and stenosis, I remember as a medical student getting confused between those. So regurgitation is when the, the blood is going the wrong way, so the valve is not closing properly. And another name... A leaky valve, and another name for that is insufficiency. Stenosis means it's not opening properly, so the valve is stenosed or narrowed. So looking at the mitral valve anatomy in more detail, so as we said, it's between the left atrium and the left ventricle, or you can think of it as the entry door to the left ventricle. And as I said before, there's leaflets and there's two of them. There's an anterior leaflet and a posterior leaflet, which make the mitral cap of the bishop. And another really important uh, piece of anatomy with the mitral valve is the chordae tendinae, chordae tendinae, which are linked to the uh, ventricle wall by the papillary muscles. And that's important to know because in an ischemic heart attack, you could um, have a rupture of those chordae tendinae if the papillary muscles have been affected in the heart attack and you can get acute mitral regurgitation. Mm, so the chordae tendinae are the cords that pull the valve open. Yeah, exactly. So I think we should talk a little bit about why mitral regurgitation would cause a systolic murmur rather than a diastolic murmur. Yeah, so systolic murmur is when you have a lot of blood flowing in systole when the ventricle contracts. So if you imagine in your head that left ventricle contracting, that blood is going to shoot one of two directions. So the direction it's supposed to go is through the aortic valve. But if you've got a very stenosed tight valve you might get a murmur there which is why aortic stenosis can cause a systolic murmur but then the other reason you might get a murmur is if that back door so that connection between the left atrium and the left ventricle otherwise known as the mitral valve if that's leaky if that's allowing blood to go through rather than stopping it you might get a murmur there as well so that's why you get a systolic murmur in uh, mitral regurgitation good all right so mitral regurgitation classification i think is i think classification in general i always find a, a good place to start when you're learning about a new condition so mr can be acute or chronic and it can be primary or secondary and today we're mostly going to be talking about chronic mitral regurgitation but just a, a as a quick overview we'll go through both so primary mitral regurg is when you're talking about issues with the valve itself yeah so the most common cause of that is degenerative. So an old person, their valve is just kind of worn down over time and it's leaky now. So that's the top cause. Which which usually is um, explained by mitral valve prolapse. Yeah, so that's like the intermediate step. So you get MVP, mitral valve prolapse first, and that then develops into mitral regurgitation. But in a 20-year-old girl who's got AF and you're worried about her mitral valve, what's going to be the cause of that? So rheumatic heart disease, I think that's one of the leading causes around the world. Yeah, not so common in Australia anymore, fortunately, but we still do see some of it both from uh, immigrants from other countries, particularly Vietnamese people I've noticed anecdotally. 
and also unfortunately in our indigenous community which is very shameful so a bunch of other things we'll just rattle them off and not go into much detail but infective endocarditis collagen vascular disease acute trauma if you get stabbed in the heart mitral annular calcification some drugs bromocryptine is one of the main ones that i've heard of and congenital malformations are all possible causes of primary MR. So just in, enjoy that list washing over you, never to be remembered again. <laughs> <laughs> and what about the secondary causes, Beck? So first, I just want to say this is the same as functional MR. Around the cardiology unit, you'll hear functional MR thrown around a little bit. And it's not the same as a, a functional headache or anything like that. No, this they're is, not faking it. Exactly. They're, not, they're not faking this pansystolic <laughs> murmur. So that's when there's there's another problem to do with the structure of the heart that's causing the mitral valve to not work properly. So the main one here is coronary artery disease. So yeah, it's the structure around the valve. The ventricles themselves are messed up in some way. So a common one is a dilated cardiomyopathy. If you imagine the, the heart is dilated, that's going to pull the valve apart and blood's going to leak through. And another common one is right ventricular pacing. Oh, really? Mm. Yeah, right. Okay, so... So I guess the main ones there, primary, you've got to think degenerative, dege- degenerative Good job. or it. rheumatic heart disease, and secondary, coronary artery disease or cardiomyopathies. So just uh, to briefly go over the acute causes of mitral regurgitation, as I alluded to earlier, so if you rupture your chordae tendinae because your papillary muscles have been messed up by a heart attack, that might cause acute MR, and it's a huge emergency if that happens. And infective endocarditis is the other major one. And traumas on this list, I guess if you get stabbed in the heart, that's never a good thing. Mm. Okay, so to recap, mitral regurgitation, and if you're a medical student, this is really the only thing to take away from this podcast, is a left-sided systolic murmur. It can be acute or chronic. Chronic MR is most commonly degenerative from a mitral valve prolapse in developed countries and rheumatic heart disease is a big contributor in Indigenous Australia and developing countries. It can be primary or secondary and the secondary causes are usually from coronary artery disease or cardiomyopathy. All right, so moving on to pathophysiology of mitral regurgitation. So let's just go through some questions. What happens to the ejection fraction? So in heart failure, which can be caused by mitral regurgitation, generally we kind of track that by looking at the ejection fraction. What percentage of the left ventricle is getting ejected with each systole? Is that a good measure in mitral regurgitation? It is in a way, but not in the way that you'd expect. Mm. So the ejection fraction... uh, talks about how much blood gets out of the left ventricle not specifically going forward but also backwards Mm. so initially it's increased because not only do you have the blood that's squirting out through the aortic valve but you've got some blood squirting backwards through the mitral valve so Mm. if the if the ejection fraction actually does get to less than 60 percent it's bad news you're in big trouble yeah so normal ejection fraction is a disaster all right so what about the actual size of the atria and the ventricle So does the left um, atrium or the left ventricle increase in size or decrease? So it gets bigger. Both of them get bigger. And the reason for this is that I think it's quite intuitive why the left atrium would get bigger. The blood that usually is exiting the left atrium is now coming back into it again. So it's, it's been loaded up with more blood. So that makes sense. But that also means that in the next um, heartbeat that is squeezing the blood from the left atrium into the left ventricle, there's more blood going in. 
to the left ventricle as well. So both the LA and the LV get bigger. So it's volume overload. Mm. And I, to go into even more detail here, so enlargement of the left atrium puts tension on the posterior mitral leaflet. And that makes the valve, that's already a bit of an issue, even more regurgitant. And the left ventricular enlargement also worsens the mitral regurgitation. Yeah, because remember before we said a dilated cardiomyopathy can cause mitral regurgitation functionally because it pulls the valve leaflets apart. So that's part of this pathophysiology as well. So at the end of the day, MR begets MR is the lesson to, to remember here. So I think we've harped on long enough about how all of this works. What does it look like? What's the clinical presentation of mitral regurgitation? I imagine it's going to be the same three symptoms that all cardiology problems present with. It's not it's more not or a, less yeah. not, not a specialty where you need to take a sophisticated history necessarily. So fatigue, exertional dyspnea, uh, they might get some palpitations if they've got some atrial fibrillation, as our young lady does. And then if it gets bad enough, uh, the pressure will track backwards from the left atrium through the pulmonary vessels and then into the right side of the heart, and then they'll get right heart failure as well. So and then they get all the typical right heart failure symptoms, so peripheral edema, elevated jugular venous pressure, and maybe even some ascites. Yeah, and I think an important thing here to remember is that most of these symptoms only come out far down the line. So mild or even moderate chronic mitral regurgitation is usually asymptomatic. That's why when you hear this on a cardiac examination of a patient who's come in for something else, they usually have no idea that they've got anything wrong with their heart. Mm. So we said that we thought Mary might have mitral regurgitation because she had atrial fibrillation. What other kind of features of uh, Mary's case might point towards mitral regurg? We kind of said it already, but she grew up in, in an Aboriginal community and she remembers getting a febrile illness as a child, which resulted in a rash and a swollen joints and maybe even, even some Sydneyham's career. Sydneyham's? Sydneyham's. Sydneyham's? Sydneyham's. Sid's. Sid's. Sid's career. Yeah, I don't think we actually mentioned this in the story at the at the start, but it is something that you should ask people if you're thinking that they might have had rheumatic heart disease. They they never remember that they've had rheumatic fever, but if you say when you were a little kid, do you remember getting this illness where you had high fevers and then you list some of the symptoms? Often they'll be able to say that yes, they remember that. Hmm. All right, and so moving on to the examination. So you've taken your your three symptoms that you usually do in a cardiology exam, tick them off, and now you're taking your, doing your examination, which is a little bit more interesting. Yeah, so, so look, my examination often consists just of listening to the heart, and Davo, a couple of months out from his clinical exam, probably has a bit more of a sophisticated approach. So Davo, I think I'll leave it to you to explain this. All right. Let's so, start with the OBS. So blood pressure uh, can be normal, but I guess if they're in, in bad left ventricular failure, it will be reduced. And if they're in bad left ventricular failure, particularly if it's acute mitral regurgitation, they, they'll probably be tachypneic. There'll be an element of acute pulmonary edema. So then moving on to the carotids. So there'll be a sharp, low-volume upstroke um, due to that reduced cardiac output. But basically, it'll just be hard to feel because their heart's not working very well. And then you, it's worth having a look at the jugular venous pressure, and that'll tell you whether the, the physiology has got bad enough to track through to the right side of the heart as well. And next you move on to palpation using the Italian Connor method. And this is really where the money is 
um, when you're doing a, like a short case for a cardiac exam, that's really going to narrow narrow down your your differential. So in mitral regurgitation, what's the apex plate going to be like? So it's hyperdynamic and usually laterally laterally displaced. Yeah, so the, the lateral displacement and the diffuseness of it is, is the real key feature, I think, because that tells you that it's a volume overloaded heart rather than a pressure overloaded heart that you might see in something like aortic stenosis. So what does diffuse mean? You can so just you, feel you, it you all can, over there. Yeah, you can feel Like usually Tally and probably her corner as well says that you shouldn't feel the apex beat over more than a 20 cent coin. Um, but in, in mitral regurgitation, you can feel over a much wider area. So we're talking 50 cent coin at least. Yeah, maybe even like a $10 note, wow. potentially, if it's really bad. And then the exciting bits here, put your stethoscope on the heart. And uh, the first thing to remember when you're listening to the heart, I stuff this up all the time, I talk about the murmur first. But really the first thing you should appreciate is the heart sounds, and that's what you should present first as well. So you listen for S1, S2, and in mitral regurgitation, as you can imagine, S1, which is usually the sound that happens when the mitral valve closes, if it's not closing very well, it's going to be absent or soft or buried in this murmur that we've talked about. And then if it's really severe, never in my life have I appreciated this, and I don't think many people operating in the 21st century have, you can get a widely split S2. Um, because the aortic valve closes early because the left ventricular left atrial pressure equalizes quickly. Don't worry very much about that last sentence. That's, that's very fine print stuff. And then if it's really severe, you might hear an S3. So that's a third heart sound, which you hear in lots of different types of heart failure, but also in mitral regurgitation. And then finally, you can comment on the murmur, which you'd be itching to talk about. So the murmur, I might, I might take over this bit because yeah. I know this bit. So it's usually pretty loud. It's usually something that you, you can appreciate quite easily. So grade three is the loudest a murmur can get before there's a palpable thrill. Usually it's grade three or four. It's a hollow systolic murmur, which also means pan-systolic. And Contrast that with the aortic stenosis, which is just an ejection systolic. systolic. So you don't hear it through all of systole. And what this means, if I can... Uh, just sing this out for you is to this is sort of the reason that you can't appreciate s1 and s2 very clearly because it goes through the whole of systole and you just hear the shh 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 rather than hearing the heart sounds in between the whooshing part mm -hmm. so the murmur is loudest at the apex and it radiates to the axilla to the axilla yeah right into the armpit it can radiate in other places as well but i think that's the real textbook answer there. So remember Mary? Let's no. talk about what her exam findings showed. So her OBS were stable, her blood pressure was fine, 120 on 80. She had clear lungs, you couldn't see the jugular venous pressure and there was no peripheral edema, so no evidence of left or right heart failure there. She's got a bit of a displaced apex beat, so that is a key, key examination feature that you hang a lot of hats on. There's no thrills, but there was a loud pansystolic murmur in the mitral area radiating to the axilla. You couldn't hear any heart sounds, but your consultant told you that she could hear an S3. All right, I think it's time for a recap. Your favourite. All right, so let's talk about classification of an MR. Any type of medical problem, it's good to break it down into bits. So how do you break down mitral regurge? So I think about acute and chronic, primary and secondary. Yeah, and secondary is functional, the same thing. Yeah.
So chronic is usually degenerative or rheumatic fever. And if it's secondary, I'm thinking about coronary artery disease and cardiomyopathy. Yeah. And okay. And it causes left atrial and left ventricular dilation. And that is why MR begets MR. It's the spiraling down process. And it's often associated with atrial fibrillation because of the left atrial dilatation. Mm -hmm. And in terms of symptoms, it's just the typical cardiology symptoms. They get short of breath, they get palpitations. I'm sure sometimes they get chest pain. I'm just picturing my cardiology consultant's face hearing us talk about it. Oh, you just ask about the cardiology symptoms. I'm sure they understand. So asymptomatic until it's moderate to severe, and then you get those symptoms. On exam, mitral regurge is a pan-systolic murmur in the mitral area, that's the apex, radiating to the axilla. And for med school, that, that really is all you're going to need to know. Right, we're going to investigations, and to be honest, we won't talk a lot about these, but ECG is a nice basic one that can help you out, chest x-ray, and obviously an echocardiogram is really where all the money is. You might want to do some investigations to look for evidence of ischemic heart disease, like a stress test or echo or even an um, angiogram. Let's talk about the ECG first though. So the biggest thing you'll see, if you remember that left atrial dilatation was a key part of the pathophysiology, is evidence of that. So what are you going to see on an ECG if you've got a dilated left atrium there? So I know it's something to do with the P wave because that's the atrial one. And I know that Is that because it's written on the slide in front of you or you just generally know that? No, I actually know this one pretty well, okay, um, but if we just pretend I don't. <laughs> no, no, so, so I always think that, so the P wave is the atrial one, and then you know that there's two different things that can happen, whether it's the left atrium or the right atrium, hmm. and I know that one of them looks like an M, and the other one is peaked. Hmm. The one that looks like an M is probably related to P mitrale, which is probably related to the mitral valve. So I'm going to say that the ECG in mitral regurgitation shows P mitrale, which is an M-shaped or bifid P wave. Yeah, which signifies left atrial dilatation or hypertrophy. And the other thing, of course, you'll see as a result of that left atrial dilatation is atrial fibrillation. All right, and on the chest X-ray, so where is the left atrium anatomically? Is that right at the front of the chest, right at the back? So it's... It's at the back, so it's quite posterior. Yeah. And when you're having a look at a chest X-ray, the left atrium is actually the right border of the heart. Very confusing for me still. And so if you've got a really dilated left atrium, you might see this double right heart border. Hmm. But the more useful sign, I think, is um, splaying of the carina. So the carina, which is where the right and uh, left... It's the fork in the road. Yeah, where the right and left bronchus... Um, forks off, that's more splayed, it's more flattened out because the left atrium is pushing on it. Obviously, if you're a medical student, you'll know exactly the degree of splay that mm. a normal um, carina has. <laughs> and then, of course, you might see evidence of left heart failure. And you probably actually, probably the most important thing I should say is a dilated heart. You'll see a big heart on a chest x ray if they've got bad mitral regurgitation. Mm. So that's that's when you kind of when you're presenting a short case. That's when you sigh. Uh, sigh that's when you sigh of relief. You have a sigh ah. of relief <laughs> because you've, you've you've said, "Oh, it's a dilated apex beat," and you're never really a hundred percent sure. And then you look at the chest section and feel like it is a big heart. Good, I need to make that up. All right, echoes. 
So you have a look at the echo, and the main the main thing you're looking at is firstly, is there mitral regurgitation? Did your examination prowess lead you to the right diagnosis? Mm-hmm. And if there is, is there any evidence that this might be pr- uh, primary MR or could it be secondary? There's something else going on in this heart. Mm. So what if it was ischemic secondary cause of mitral regurgitation? What might you see on that echo? So you might see an area of hypokinesis. Yeah, so like segmental segments of the heart not working, corresponding to vascular territories. All right. And then, so how do they grade mitral regurgitation on echo? Is it the same as, you know, aortic stenosis? You have, everyone knows the numbers for aortic stenosis. Yeah, everyone. Everyone, <laughs> everyone. Uh, God knows. I just look at the bit where it says mild, moderate or severe, and I think that that's enough. And Please that, tell me that's enough. And that's my impression of what, I, I could be wrong here, but that's my impression of what cardiologists do. I think they're more eyeball it. For, for regurgita- regurgitant lesions, it's more as this mild, moderate or severe. It's not quite as much as a science as the stenotic lesions are. So Mary's TTE said that there was severe, or the report said that there was severe mitral regurgitation and no prolapse. The left ventricular ejection fraction was 50%. Do you remember earlier we were saying it's bad news if the ejection fraction is less than... 60, Something? 60%. 60%. So, so this, this yeah. is a bad news. Yeah. Um, so that could, that could be normal for another person, but in MR, that's really bad. Mm. And there's good views. And this is important because it's actually hard to see the mitral valve. You've got to be in exactly the right place through a, a TTE. And often you need to go to a toe. And that's because, remember, we said it's at the back of the heart, not anteriorly. And actually, given given my experience with a medical student the other day who wrote toe in lowercase letters um, when she was writing in the notes and I suggested a patient with possible endocarditis might need a toe. A toe means transesophageal uh, echocardiogram and uh, not the digit on, your, on yeah. your foot. But an easy mistake to make. So sorry if we use too many acronyms. Let us know if it's getting in the way. All right, so Mary has stage four mitral regurgitation. Severe and symptomatic, likely secondary to rheumatic heart disease. So what's the treatment for Mary? I don't know. She's doomed. No, she's not. So as with everything, you've got to look at lifestyle, medical, surgical. Lifestyle-wise, let's be honest, there's not really a lot. So let's talk about medical. What do you, what do you think about medication-wise? So there's two main problems you have to treat here. So first of all is Mary's atrial fibrillation. So you would probably anticoagulate her given she's got heart failure. But given she's only 20, she probably has a chance of ASC of 1, which is kind of like a borderline case, whether you anticoagulate or not. But usually uh, mitral regurgitation happens in people with other medical problems and they have a chance of ASC score above 1. Um, and so the other thing you consider is, you can consider as well is um, cardioversion. You can actually get her out of atrial fibrillation if you shock her heart. Mm. So, so if you're going to do that, you need to actually anticoagulate first for a period of time. Yeah, that's right. And then what would you use for anticoagulation? Yeah, so you've probably heard about all these sexy new drugs that the stroke specialists like, like Dabigatran, Apixaban, Rivaroxaban, which are the NOACs, but they're actually... They're actually called DOACs now. Does that make you feel old? Well, I think, I don't know why we didn't start with DOACs. Like, obviously, they're not going to be... They're going to be novel forever. I know. (laughs) So little foresight. All right, so but yeah, oh, so they're medicine. not they're not actually approved for valvular AF, which is what this is. Hmm. 
So we're giving her warfarin if either she's got AF with a transvasca above one or if we're considering cardioversion in the future. So you said that there were two things you had to treat? And so the other thing you've got to treat is the heart failure itself. So you need to treat that with the same medication, so beta blocker to slow it down, reduce that sympathetic remodeling. ACE inhibitors work their magic as well. And then you might consider digoxin as well, although that's less kosher. Realistically though, mitral regurgitation is one of those problems that we can't claim to fix with medications. We really need the surgeon's help here because all of that stuff is just kind of holding them over. Hmm. So, so what are the surgical options? So there's two main ones. Uh, there's mitral valve repair or reconstruction. Uh, that includes a valvuloplasty where you insert a ring. And then also you can replace uh, the mitral valve. And that's either with a bioprosthetic valve or a metal valve. But it's my understanding that you'd usually do a metal valve because they're probably going to have to be anticoagulated anyway for their atrial fibrillation. And metal valves do last longer. Mm. So you'd consider a bioprosthetic valve in someone who was over the age of 70 or so, but not, not really anybody else. Yeah. And just FYI, in the Jewish and Islamic faith, they're, uh, they're all good. Oh, really? Yep. There you go. All right. And then, so what's, what's preferred? Is it better to do a repair or a replacement? Always better to do a repair, mm, but, but some people can't have a repair, so it's kind of up to the surgeons. They'll have a have a squeeze at the valve and decide what's going to work for that patient. But where it's possible to do a repair, they do a repair. Yeah. All right. So then the next question is, when do you actually go ahead and do the surgical intervention, which is the definitive treatment? And I, I went to a revision course last year, and the the guy gave us this wonderful piece of advice, saying the best time to do a surgical replacement or repair of a mitral valve and regurgitation is a week before they go into atrial fibrillation, which basically basically means it's hard. It's really hard to pick because obviously it's always risky open heart surgery. But then once they've gone into atrial fibrillation, the physiology's already changed. Their heart is remodeled, and you've lost some of the benefits that you get from surgery. Hmm. But in terms of the actual criteria, don't worry too much about this. Usually they only operate if it's symptomatic, but then basically if it's asymptomatic, if it's really bad on echo, as in they've got a reduced ejection fraction, which we said is a really bad sign, um, then you, you might go ahead and do it even if they're asymptomatic. And then for functional mitral regurgitation, it's less common to actually do surgical intervention because mm. usually the other comorbidities and things are so bad that it's not necessarily going to work. And really, your treatments here should be directed at treating the underlying cause, yeah. for example, ischemic heart disease. Treat the cause, treat the cause, and, and treat it quite aggressively. Mm. All right, so going back to Mary, what happened to her back? So she did get a mitral valve repair, Good. and her exercise tolerance improved, and she walked her Kelpie to the clinic follow-up to prove it. Mm. Cool. Did the Kelpie have to like wait outside the hospital? No, no. Very went, open-minded here. Went into the hospital. Went into the hospital. All it's right. a therapy kelpie. Cool. All right, so that's, that's mitral regurgitation. We're going to do our famous take-home points slide now. All right, so mitral regurgitation can be acute or chronic, but we've told you nothing about acute, so let's talk about chronic. Uh, the causes are most often degenerative or rheumatic fever, rheumatic heart disease in developing countries or indigenous Australia. Mm -hmm. It can be primary or secondary, and secondary is also called functional, and usually that's because of... Ischemic cardiomyopathy. Yeah. And MR begets MR, and that's because it causes left atrial and left ventricular dilatation. And the vicious cycle. 
the history usually is one of no symptoms at all until MR is moderate or severe, and then fatigue, exertional dyspnea, and signs and symptoms of heart failure and atrial fibrillation. On examination, uh, mitral regurgitation causes a pan-systolic murmur in the mitral area radiating to the axilla. The treatment primarily is surgery. Repair is better than replacement when it's possible, only if the MR is severe and symptomatic. You might consider surgery if it's severe and asymptomatic, depending on the patient's particular factors. Awesome. Thanks very much, Beck, for writing that one up. And uh, sorry that it's taken so long for us to do an episode. It's probably going to be a little bit slow for the next few weeks as we gear up for exams, but then after that we'll, we'll get back on it. D- Dava would love you to uh, send him good luck chocolates for his clinical exam. <laughs> uh, what I'd probably prefer, actually, is a few Facebook likeys. They um, always make me feel good about the podcast, and it's a really good way for other people to see it um, on their Facebook newsfeed, and maybe we can spread our audience and teach a few more people, which is why we're doing this. Thanks very much, guys. Bye. Bye.